Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We need to get you up to date on the floods forced by Hurricane Florence. And we cross over now to Chris Flavel, who joins us from North Carolina, Bloomberg News' climate and adaptation reporter. Chris, give us the latest, please. Sure. Well, I just got back from Charlotte uh, last night. I've been there for a few days. The uh, rain started in earnest really on Friday night, continuing heavily through yesterday. Amazing how slowly it was, how long it took the effects of that hurricane to reach inland to Charlotte. And it looked like the floods were just getting worse. Uh, there were rivers around Charlotte beginning to top their banks. It's hard to know how long the effect might last because they're still building. Chris, do we know when these floods will start to recede? You know, it's hard to say. It's the question of how, uh, how inundated the soil is, how much water is, where it goes. Uh, I I got the sense from talking to local officials they are braced for a multi-day event in Charlotte, and only then can they assess the impact and figure out what it'll take to clean up after. Uh, Chris, away from the media and the you know people on the beach and blowing winds and all that, what is the backstory you observe down there? I got so a few things. It's a good question because you're right. The the new burn stuff gets the most attention. I certainly got the impression the state that knows what they're doing. They're used to this stuff. You talk to residents in small towns around the state. They all say this happens all the time. We're, we're used to it by now. We know how to handle it. But then again, with climate change, the thing we've learned is just because you've been through storms doesn't, know you're, doesn't mean you're quite prepared for what comes next. Everyone said these are historic amounts of rain, at least in Charlotte. So no one really knows if something new will happen in terms of the amount of flooding, the sort of severity of flooding. But people were ready. It's a state that, that knows how to handle this stuff, and they don't seem to have any, any blinders on. They seem to appreciate that uh, this could be really bad, and they've got to do whatever it takes to deal with it. Chris Lavelle, thank you so much with an update on uh, what we see in the Carolinas. Shahab Jalanous joining us now here in New York City. Credit Suisse's global head of FX trading strategy. Shahab, which side of the trade story do you sit on this morning? Because it looks like it could get better last week. We were going to get talks between the Chinese and the United States. And then this morning, it looks like it may well get worse with the Chinese reportedly set to walk away from any potential talks. Yeah, we've, we've been on the more cynical side, to be honest with you, when it comes to this story. Uh, on the U.S. side, it feels to us that uh, the agenda for, for the Trump administration going into the midterms is going to be to try to roll out the base. You know, that seems to be the idea, which requires more of this type of uh, talk from, from our perspective. Uh, and on the Chinese side, the, uh, the, the odds of them backing down preemptively in, in the face of pressure uh, doesn't seem you know, too high either. So it does seem like we have more of the same ahead, and, and that's obviously an issue for the, for the FX market, particularly the Chinese renminbi. Well, let's talk about how the FX market is capturing this story this morning. It was interesting to wake up this morning, see the negative headlines around the trade story, see futures negative, but the dollar weaker against the bulk of G10. What explains that dollar weakness? I think G10 
Uh, and actually, currencies in general, you're seeing a lot of dispersion now in performance. Um, it's leaving the overall dollar actually, funny enough, stuck in a range, and it has been for, for two to three months. Um, but dispersion is, is really the name of the game right now. In Europe, you've got uh, a situation where, for example, the Norges Bank is going to hike rates probably this week. Uh, European data have, have been quite solid as well. And to some extent, the market has been able to ignore some of the issues that have affected emerging markets, like, for example, this trade story. Uh, so I think when you look at the dollar, you do have to differentiate between the various currencies uh, and uh, you know, look at each story in its own light. Uh, yeah, but come on, eight days ago, we had a contagion thing going. Give us a contagion update. I mean, it's not there unless the news makes it there. I think contagion is unlikely unless, as you suggest, there's some... Uh, feed through from some of the shocks that we're seeing into the banking system, for example, some central source uh, of, of actual contagion, some, something that distributes it into the system more widely. Now, you saw a few weeks ago with respect to Turkey, there were some unknowns around the extent to which that could create that problem. Um, but the market seems to have digested it and decided that it isn't really a problem for the system. So until we get a shock big enough to really bring the overall system into question, I think well, this dispersion is, is going to Is continue. it going through 1997 weakness? I, I mean, the bottom line is Philippine peso crashes out, then it moves weaker over three, four years, and we're almost back to that 2003, 2000 for weakness. And look at John... Look at Argentinian peso Yeah. on Friday. I mean, you can rationalize well, it all you want. We've some massive the years, but I, I don't like yeah. the 1990s comparison. I don't like comparing fixed exchange rate regimes to, go to flexible that. exchange rate regimes. Yeah. Yes, the levels yeah. might matter, yeah. but the moves haven't been as vicious. They haven't been as devastating compared to the late 90s across EM, outside of places like Argentina. That's right. Well, it, it, the difference then was that, uh, obviously, having these dollar pegs uh, allowed for huge inflation differentials you know, to build up over time and then had to be suddenly adjusted in one shock. Uh, right now what you're seeing, especially in a currency like the Philippine peso, which is free floating, you're seeing uh, a reaction that takes you know, many months to unfold, but ultimately reflects the same factor, which is that you do have high rate differentials, in, uh, inflation differentials, sorry, between a country like the Philippines and the US, and you don't really have high enough real rates to protect the currency at this point in time. So what's your base case for the US dollar right now? We think the US dollar um, going into the midterms probably continues to behave as it is at this point in time. So it stays relatively firm uh, against the, uh, the wider group of currencies. The midterm elections do pose a potential pivot point from our perspective in as much as if you do actually see a very strong Democrat performance, uh, it will be seen by the market as maybe an indictment to some extent of some of the policy mixes that we've had until this, uh, this point in time, even if they have been good for the equity market, for example. Um, and that unknown, that new unknown as to what that will do for animal spirits, for example, could be a, a weight on, on US rate expectations, but and on the dollar by extension at that point. Shahab Jalanous, Credit Suisse's Global Head of FX Trading Strategy. Great to have you with us this morning sure, on Bloomberg Radio you. and on uh, Bloomberg TV as well. John Farrow found a PDF from 2008, is it, John? Yeah, March away. March away. Banks and brokers, more charges ahead. Mike Mayo, the author.
a fantastic piece and the absence of this management. This is like six employers this, this ago? Is, this is like the absence of management realism and it's all here in the piece. And of course, in late 07, Mike was the one that downgraded City and I imagine got a terrific amount of abuse for downgrading the oh, stock. yes. Mike may have joined but now of Wells Fargo, senior analyst. Mike, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Let's look back and I want to sort of look forward one time, but take us seven and early 08. You downgrade to some of the management who just aren't being realistic enough. What kind of reception did you get? Well, this is the, you know, 10 years since Lehman Brothers failed. This would have been Lehman Brothers Monday when there's a lot of havoc, but it did not start in 2007 or 2008. It started throughout last decade when the banking industry had the weakest balance sheet in a generation, more leverage on the bank's balance sheet in decades before the financial crisis. So by the time you got to 2007 and 2008 and cracks were forming, once you have cracks with that amount of leverage, it does not have a pretty ending. And what's interesting is you break down the banks. This is at the piece um, from March 08. You break down the banks into individual banks with a home equity loan exposure. And just looking at the average loan to values of like 64% at fifth third. And I imagine as time went by, this just started looking a whole lot worse. Well, you really do reach in the archives here at Bloomberg. Uh, we updated this spreadsheet about exposures to real estate and likely write downs and existing write downs. We had to update that spreadsheet every week, sometimes within a couple days right. and there was new information. It was Did you get right coming out of this great insight, the rebuild and operating income that we see? I think one of the great things unspoken now is how they've just layered on some of these too big to fail banks, huge gains in operating income. Do you, do you look back and say you got that right? Well, I think what the industry failed at, banks failed at before the crisis was it was too much about growth, growth, growth. And not profit. And not profit. And yeah. since the financial crisis, yeah. do you know that revenue <clears throat> growth in the banking industry will be the slowest this decade? in 80 years, but that's okay because banks are controlling exactly. expenses much better. In fact, we think the banking industry will have the best efficiency in history in the next five years. So if you get earnings growth without overly aggressive revenue growth, that's a good formula. We got so many things to talk about. I know John wants to dive in here with some things very quickly here. Citigroup and the tumult at Citigroup. Is Mr. Corbett in charge of a, of a strategic plan there? Uh, Mike Corbett's done a, a fine job. Um, we've taken Citigroup a long way, really reinforced the balance sheet. The risk culture is 180 degrees different than a decade ago, and that's positive, but it's not optimal yet. And we think Citigroup <clears throat> has much more uh, further to go to optimize the firm. In fact, we think if Citigroup had metrics similar to Peer, their earnings would be 25% higher today. Have we seen peak margins, peak net interest margins at these banks already? Oh, you're a little too myopically focused on net interest margins. I mean, sure, uh, many investors, the stock market as a whole has reacted unfavorably to banks this year saying, will margins be up one basis points or two basis yeah. points? The bigger picture is what's happening to revenues relative to expenses. So, so margins what's, might what's not- what's happening to loan volume then, Mike? Uh, you know, so look, if you have 5% revenue growth and 3% expense growth, that is a fantastic recipe for, for good earnings growth. And you know what's incredible? Last week, there was a presentation by Citigroup Management, and the audience was surveyed saying, what would make you more excited about owning Citigroup stock? You know what the audience said? What did they say? More loan growth. Are you kidding me? Do not ask 
for Citigroup to have overly aggressive <laughs> loan growth. They're, Citigroup's getting the risk management right. In fact, Citigroup's revenue growth this decade is likely to be the slowest since before the American Civil War. And that's a good thing because then you have more sustainable earnings growth over time. So let's talk about this because I have a ton of analysts come on the program with Tom and I on Bloomberg Radio, the same thing on Bloomberg TV. And basically the bullish picture they try and paint for financials is that yes, net interest margins might face a little bit of pressure, but loan volume's gonna make up for it. That's almost the bullish scenario for them, for the banks. You're saying that's not it? Well, look, you have cyclical lenses and you can have a structural lens. And the cyclical predictions, what's going to happen to interest rates, what's going to happen to margins. We think margins go up a little bit. We think loan growth goes up a little bit. That's fine. But it's the structural changes that are taking place. You have the strongest balance sheets in a generation. You should have the best efficiency in history in five years. You have better oversight and risk management. These are structural changes and that has more of an impact on valuation than whether a net interest margin is up one basis point or down a basis point. So it used to be the case that banks were the best proxy to capture a cyclical upswing. Are we saying banks are no longer that? Look, we're going to have recessions. We're going to have cycles. Banks are not immune to the cycles, but what we are saying is banks are less susceptible to cycles in the past. Banks are relatively more resilient that a situation like a decade ago in the financial crisis is not likely to happen over the next decade. So banks can weather a crisis better than any time in the last generation. And in fact, you'll see, we think you'll see through the next recession, yeah. banks should be a source of strength. So for that, we say thank you regulators. They've required banks to raise capital and increase liquidity enough where banks can be a source of strength. I'm not sitting here saying that's a bad thing. I th- agree with you. I think that's a good thing. But I think what you've just said kind of explains why we've got this stock underperformance, even though we've had GDP of 4% in the last quarter. Doesn't that explain it, everything you've just said? Well, we think it's too much short-term emphasis with the banks. So since the tax cuts, investors are saying, where's my dessert? I mean, the main course of banks is good. I mean, you have okay revenue growth, good expense control, good capital return. And investors are saying, where's my extra loan growth? Where's my extra capital markets? Where are my mergers? Where are those extra animal spirits showing through at the banks? And we're saying, it sounds like a bunch of whiny kids at a summer barbecue. Like you had a good dinner. Don't whine about your dessert because you're going to have a steady course of meals and not blow up. And for that, when you take the present value of future earnings, it's Tom Mm -hmm. Keenodes at CFA, that has more of an impact on valuation over the long term. What's your single best buy right now? Citigroup is our number one idea. We think they are under-optimized. We think there's reasons they can become more optimized. Over the next several months, you're going to have a change in chairman, a change in CFO, a change in consumer yeah. in the United States. I, so changes at a firm that's under-optimized creates Changing potential. to what? changing to a more optimized firm. Oh, by the way, there's- What, what does that mean? Come on, optimized firm. The New York Giants are optimized uh, right now. Optimized firm, are they gonna be able to compete at retail against Fortress Diamond? Well, the consumer business at Citigroup is way under-optimized. By the way, there's an activist in Citigroup shares, a billion-dollar ownership stake by a value act. That's the first time you've had a major activist in city shares, and it coincides with the time when you have a change in chairman. So that puts right. extra pressure. <clears throat> we think we think Citigroup needs extra intensity, okay. extra focus at the top to control expenses right. while they continue to grow revenues. Mike, I'm all ratios on Monday. What's the price to book there, price to tangible? Is it 30 cents on the dollar? 
you know, city trades just a little bit more than tangible book value. That's Trace a book. Price to tangible book. They trade at one point, you know, one, one point two times tangible book. In the old days, those the valuation levels you'd see during a crisis. So at Citigroup, you almost have, you know, evaluate, you know, a crisis price without a crisis. Yeah. That creates an opportunity. We think Citigroup stock doubles from here over the next four years. I tell you what, a, a European lender with a price the book with a one handle, uh, would they, like would, a they would run. love that. That would be like a yeah. home run. And we're nowhere Absolutely. near for so many European banks right now, Mike. And on the memory here of you know, the Lehman Brothers Monday 10 years ago, um, you know, we think there's too much recency bias. Yeah. It's all, you know, crisis this, crisis that. It's almost as if the crisis occurred just a few days ago, but that's what creates well, the opportunity. John started with Deutsche Bank. Can you give us a few words on a few, I mean, is that, can you do that from a compliance standpoint, talk about Deutsche Bank or not? Uh, I can, I worked at Deutsche Bank a, a decade ago, yeah. uh, but in terms of the global banks generally, and we've shown data on this, right. the U.S. Yep. banks, the five large U.S. banks, and that's Citi, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, and Goldman Sachs, have gained <clears throat> significant market share against right. Deutsche Bank and the yeah. other European banks, and they are likely to continue to do so because the U.S. bank balance sheets are stronger than the European yeah. bank balance sheets. Mike Mayer there, um, staying out of trouble as Tom Keane tries to get him to comment on a company outside of his coverage. <laughs> Good Try. to catch up with you, Mike. I failed. Joining us from Wells Fargo with a trip down memory lane, the legendary bank analyst that is Mike Mayo from New York City for our audience worldwide. Alongside Tom Keane, I'm Jonathan Farrow. This is one of the themes this weekend that I really, really wanted to talk about. And it's a basic idea of the gradient to a weaker economy. And it's a real mystery out there right now. Francis Donald with us with Manual Life. Francis, are, is the great fake out here that we're going to see a better economy for longer than most people are looking for? Well, this is certainly a fairly extended cycle, but I see at least 18 months of more strength here before we hit a rough patch. Right now, I'm a little bit more concerned about 2020 and what that year starts to look at, just based on what the data is showing us right now. But until then, it still looks like the all clear. Did you mean the economy or the Montreal Canadiens? Uh, Tom, I got to admit, there's some seasonality in my fandom for the Montreal Canadiens. I'm a little more focused on say, my John, fantasy 20, team right John, now. John and I are busting everybody looking up to 2020, folks. For those that don't know, in hockey, it is a disgrace how the Canadians are playing, and people are looking out, John, to 2025 in their rebuilding. Well, let's program. get to, let's get to 2020 first, Francis. We hear the year 2020 a lot from economists at the moment. Where's 2020 come from? Why 2020? In large part, it comes from just the fiscal numbers. So we are experiencing this very peculiar peculiar dynamic right now, which is that we have expansionary fiscal policy against tighter monetary policy. We haven't seen that historically. It makes comparisons to past cycles very difficult. But what we do know is based on the current numbers that are laid out, and if nothing else changes, by 2020, that fiscal stimulus that we see goes from fiscal tailwind to fiscal headwind. And then in 2020, you end up with a double whammy of tighter fiscal policy and tighter monetary policy. Now, things can change. We could get more stimulus from the United States. We could see a sizable stimulus out of China, and that could move the dial. But based on the numbers we see now, that's a little bit problematic. So you don't think we've broken out to sustainable high-trend growth here in the United States, Francis? 
oh, we, we may have improved our potential GDP rate and productivity looks like it may improve. Wages moving higher is important. Uh, potential GDP might be up a few notches, but that doesn't mean that we can't experience some cyclical softness in 2020, 2021. And, and don't forget, around that time, we should begin to see some of the tightness coming from the ECP and the Bank of Japan coming in. Right. And you may begin to see some of the impact from a flatter yield curve. Are wage gains in this new, better economy, are the wage gains dispersed throughout the economy or is it narrow and separate in selected industries? Um, it, it certainly isn't broad. We see uh, pockets of yeah. substantial wage strength. We see uh, weakness. We see continuous evidence of skills mismatches. And this is really the difference between structural issues in the economy and cyclical problems. And this is going to be one of the big challenges for anybody who looks at macro over the next one well, years is how do we separate two quarters of negative growth versus what our long-term okay. potential GDP is. But if the president or anybody else is popping, you know, we're doing 4% wage growth, do you buy that or is that you know one part of the economy getting six seven eight percent wage growth and other parts flat on their back which is it it's the latter and that's what happens with national averages across all of our economic data we see that in housing activity we see that this morning very evidenced by regional manufacturing activity in some areas doing very well but unfortunately most of our policy tools are not ones that can be directed to regional issues they have to be applied nationally that of course is the biggest problem for most central banks including the federal reserve Francis, thank you so much. Francis Donald with Manulife. Tom Keen, do you, uh, when you brush your teeth in the morning, do you let the water run? No, I do not. Just, I, I don't know where that came from. You're right. Some people they do, some people they don't. I never did that. A Google survey says that... I only says brush my that... teeth like once a month, but, you know, that's a separate story. All right. Oh, Too much dear. Right, yeah. All I was going to say is that I'm Google did a survey. Sur- with you. Can we just do a survey report here, John? Just let me... Please. 42% of Americans, according to Google, let the water run when they yeah. brush, while they brush their teeth. And our next guest is here to tell us how he's working to stop that so that people stop wasting water. Michael Phelps is the most decorated Olympian in history. He's got a t- total of 28 medals. He's got 23 gold medals over the course of five Olympic Games. And he joins us now. Michael Phelps. So what are you doing to make sure that people turn the faucet off and stop wasting water? Uh, well, this is our second year uh, with the campaign. And, and really, after going through our first year, we're, we're now able to see um, <clears throat> some feedback. And, and um, for me, this is, this is something that's very near and dear to my heart. Water has always been something that's a big part of my life, and it continues to play a big role in my life. So um, for me to continue to, to try to spread the message and, and um, you know, with the help from Colgate to be able to, to try to get people to turn the water off while they're, while they're brushing or, you know, not to take a 30 minute shower. You know, there are some things that we can all do um, together that I think will have such a big impact, uh, not only people in the U.S., but also all over the world. A 30 minute shower. I was going to say, he doesn't have daughters. He has two boys. That that's must, a difference. That's, that's it. That's a difference. Yes, Michael. You, you get, Michael, we would kill for a 30 minute No, no, shower. for a three, three minutes. For three minutes just to get in there. So, uh, Michael, did, did you grow up turning the, the faucet off when you brush your teeth? 
I've always been very conscious of, of and, and, and conscious of, of exactly what we're doing around the house, and especially when it comes to water. Um, you know, like I said, I've, I've obviously be a swim, been, been a swimmer for so long, um, but now being a family of four and, and seeing really just how much more water we use as our family grows, um, you know, right. it's, it's, it's something that we're very excited about to teach um, both of our kids at such a young age the importance of this precious mm-hmm. resource. Give us an example of what Colgate is actually doing. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, people are sneaking in their shower heads all the time and cheating here, cheating there. But what's the actual to-do list for Colgate to get us to change behavior? That's a tough thing to do, isn't it? I mean, it's some of those things, you know, like, it, it, but it's, it's also like, you know, how many times or how many people in the world or in the country are standing there brushing their teeth with the water running? Like, that's something that's so easy and so simple to do just to turn it off because, you know, that simple thing is wasting up to 64 glasses of water. So, you know, and that's just one brush and one person. So if you multiply that by mm-hmm. however many hundred million people we have in this country, um, that's a lot of water. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's just simple um, everyday thing that we can do and, and just be, you know, extremely cautious of, of how much water you're actually using. Um, you know, I think it's just, it's something we can all just do common sense. Here. We can all use common sense to do. If you're just joining us worldwide and coast to coast, joining us, the Olympian Michael Phelps. And I can only say, Pim, that I remember the absolute certitude that only Mark Spitz would reign supreme forever. And it took a kid from Baltimore to just destroy uh, so many of those records that Mr. Spitz held from a few years back. 23 gold medals. Michael Phelps, what does it take to get Michael Phelps to come over to your house and actually turn the water off in the morning? <laughs> admonish people. Is it is it some kind of tracking device? I mean, how do you measure, you know, whether you're actually complying? You know, you people say, okay, okay, I, mean, I won't well, do it. Well, three out of four people who uh, understand and know what we're doing um, or what I'm doing and what Colgate's doing, the message that we're trying to get out there, three out of four of those people uh, in the world, or excuse me, in the nation, are making that change. And just with those three out of four, we're say, we saved 50 billion uh, gallons of water last year. Oh. So I think that alone, that number alone, should be yeah. something that's significant enough to be able to grab the attention of um, anybody in the world and, and, and just to be able to, to, to chime in and, and, and help where you can. And, and Michael, what's so important here is the economics of water, where for so many Americans, it's basically a free source. We don't even look at right. it. John Tucker, do you look at your water bill? I yeah, mean, my water bill would... is significant, and uh, I've resorted to watering the lawn with gray. I mean, water. I don't look at my water bill. I mean, I'll be honest. I don't, Michael, yeah. what are we going to do to make water a price commodity where we actually care what the bill says? I mean, I think I, I think people, or I would guess that people probably just. Uh, assume that we're not going to run out of water exactly. or assume that we're going to have clean water forever. So, you know, it's, I, I think it's, it's, it's just something that uh, we all have to be so, so cautious of. And, and, and water's not the only thing that, that could run out. You know, all of these resources are going to run out at some point in the world, at some point in time, right? So it's like, I, I just feel like it, it's just so easy to logically be like, okay, what can I do to change my everyday life to be able to make an impact for the future? And, and for me now being a father of two, I want to make all of the changes that I can do for myself and try to help other people make those changes. So the young kids get to experience exactly what we had and, and, and everything that we had as, as children and now in this day and age and growing up. Michael Phelps, is there any chance that you're going to come out of retirement yet again? 
No. Okay, you're done. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think I could, but I, I just have no desire to. Um, I think it would be a lot easier this time around just because I'm in better shape than I was last time when I came out of retirement. But um, I, I just have no goals to really um, get me motivated to, to go back to, to going through that grind. And, and right. you know, for, for what we're doing now, um, you know, I, I have the opportunity to, to, right. to, to potentially save a life. And, and for me, that experience and that opportunity is right. way, way more valuable than ever winning an Olympic gold medal. Michael, what is your number one advice to parents dealing with the American jockocracy? You always seem to finesse your way through it. You mentioned earlier today the importance of your mother in, in your training. But to, to, the, to the thousands and thousands of people listening to us coast to coast who are part of the American jockocracy, what's your best practice or the thing to avoid with kids? I mean, like I was saying earlier, my mom, the biggest thing that she did was just so supportive. You know, she she wasn't like kind of overbearing, really like forcing me to do X, Y and Z. It was really just um, the goals and the dreams that I had. She kind of helped me pave the way to be able to give me the opportunity that I needed to have that chance to do something that no one else had ever done. So, um, you know, I think just the support and, and obviously she was there when I ever needed help. Um, and, and I think oh. that was something that was just so beneficial and, and, um, you know, hopefully I can be, um, you know, a little bit of a, of a parent that my mom was to me and, and, and hopefully, yeah. uh, everything that I, I learned from her, I'll be able to now pass along to my two, ch- yeah. uh, my two children. And we didn't have time in a radio interview to him to talk about, he's got a lap counter going in the bathtub for his kids. <laughs> they go down under the faucet and touch the end, boom, you know, he goes, the three, guy, two, uh, they, yeah. they actually just started taking baths together, and they are wild men in there. So yeah. uh, we're, we we have uh, the bathtub filled. And by the oh, end, no, no. The, wait, 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 wait. You don't, you don't have them in an aquasphere or a Speedo swimsuit, do you? Uh, they are in, in their the, board shorts uh, the, outside, but they are in their Huggies little swimmers every time they get in the pool. That's something. See how that, he got that uh, endorsement? In? He's an endorsement they're machine. They're always in there. See? The Colgate. Michael Phelps, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. And support of Colgate and serious issue on water. And this really harkens back to what we've done on surveillance and Bloomberg on the economy on whether it's salt water or it's fresh water in Africa. And just in this case with Colgate, just simple, stupid stuff. To me, it's not a big deal because I turn off the water while I'm brushing my teeth. But a lot of people, they just let it run forever. When you brush your teeth. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.